Hi, and welcome to the Rostrum Agency Managing Reputational Risk podcast with me, Grant Bather. In this series of podcasts, I'll be discussing crisis and reputation management from a public relations and media perspective. I'll take a look at the definition of a crisis, what it feels like to be engulfed in a media storm, the role of a crisis communications team, and what steps businesses and individuals can take to minimise media exposure around reputational risk. Each episode, I'll be joined by guests who will give their unique insight into managing reputational risk. And of course, I'll give my take from a PR perspective. Having started my career as a journalist before becoming a company spokesperson and PR professional, I've seen all angles of a crisis. So join me and my guests as we delve into the issues that play into managing reputational risk. For today's episode, I'm joined by Adam Gordon and Noel Murphy. Adam is co-founder and CEO at Candidate ID a marketing automation SaaS platform for HR teams and employers such as IBM and Microsoft. Grant, hi, thanks very much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. And I'm also joined by Noel, Senior HR Practitioner at Expert HR. Expert HR is an online source of legal compliance, good practice and benchmarking information made available to HR professionals. Within Expert HR, Noel is responsible for setting the research agenda for HR practice, which involves digging into key metrics such as absence rates and costs, labour turnover, and the makeup and breakdown of the HR function. Hi, Grant. So thank you both for, for joining me. Noel, if I can start with you, how do you define a crisis? Well, I think really a crisis when it comes to uh, the HR community. A crisis is pretty much uh, every day of their working week. They will have different and new things coming in. So every grievance that comes across their desk will have some kind of different nuance, etc. So for me, a crisis is um, the way the HR function goes about and does its job on a daily basis. And Adam, the same question to you. How do you define a crisis? As a business owner and as somebody who primarily works with HR teams, I look at it in two ways. The first is, of course, around uh, the viability of the organization. And that can be impacted by a a lot of different factors. One of them, of course, being finance. Uh, One of them, of course, being availability and supply chain. And then the third one, uh, which is equally as as important, if not more important, is uh, around people and what people think of the organization as a place to work. And if any of these three things is really negatively impacted by something, then that could create a crisis. A crisis has to be something that is really significant, though. Otherwise, it could be uh, a problem or, you know, a challenge or something like that. That's definitely not a crisis. A crisis is something which hits the very top of the priority list. Yeah, completely agree. When I speak about crisis, it's usually something that disrupts your day to day and means that you can't do what you're supposed to be doing that day or that week and completely rips up the rule book. There has been, and the reason I've I've got you both on here is is a, a little bit to talk about the great resignation and the headlines around that. According to to Bloomberg, did some research and they said that up to 25% of UK workers were planning a job change in the next 12 months. And I wondered if that was something that that you were both seeing and what you can tell me about the companies that you're working with, if they're seeing you know, any anything like that. Well, I would say that our latest research with HR um, professionals looking at 
HR roles and kind of their priorities over the coming 12 months. Retaining staff and recruitment was definitely an issue for them. But really, it was about the shift in the employer-employee relationship that had to happen during the pandemic and during the, you know, the changes to working from home, but also the frontline workers who had to keep turning up. And there's been a shift in the employees are now more more stakeholders within the organizations and they need to be recognized as that and if they're not recognized then we know that they're going to start looking for another job and it's kind of a bit of a perfect storm really isn't it because we've had coming out of the pandemic hopefully fingers crossed um, and individuals have had the opportunity to think about what they like about their job what they enjoy doing also their work-life balance and whether or not it's always necessary to actually go into the office or whether the remote and hybrid working suits them and alongside that we have this looming cost of living crisis insure or national insurance being increased so employees are really going to have to go where their skills are rewarded um, sufficiently to uh, allow them to uh, have a standard of living that um, that suits them. As well as that, the employee-employer contract has kind of changed in that employees have to have more of a say around where they're doing their work, not just what they're doing. And there has to be, there's been a certain growth in trust between employers and employees statistic from Bloomberg around 25% planning a career move. Uh, that to me actually sounds really low. Uh, I've seen quite a few other pieces of research which show that that number is probably more like 50%. A lot of people have sat tight with their employer. They've maybe foregone career progression within their roles. They've maybe decided actually you know there's a global pandemic. Everybody's there's so much disruption. I am not I don't feel able, like emotionally able to make a job move at this time as well. And I think there's a lot of um, pent up demand for promotions and career progression and people to do new jobs. And there's also the added factor of being, it's much easier for me to go and set up an online, you know, yoga workshop than it ever was before or to set up a you know, to sell my crochet work on Etsy or... No, there's not masses of people going and doing that. But the fact is that passion, the passion economy is something that's a lot more accessible to people than, than it, it ever was. You also mentioned this, the concept of this great resignation. And from the experience that I have and the data that I've seen, the risk attached to this concept of the great resignation is a lot of people leaving the workforce and not coming back. And therefore, you know, companies coming to a standstill or employers coming to a standstill, including like government services and things, because there's not enough people to do the jobs. Um, I think that is a, that is a bit of a challenge, but it's not because vast amounts of people have stopped working. It's because, you know, they're, they're maybe making job moves now in 2020, 2021 and, and, and in 2022, they're making job moves, which they weren't really making in 2020. Pre-pandemic, there was already a trend towards people staying for a short amount of time in each job. So, so in 2019, the statistic that I heard from an expert, an industry expert called Bill Berman, was that the average person was, in 2019, had been in a job for 2.6 years 
and was then making a move. And in the previous five years, that had come down one month every year. Right. So it was over, it was just over three years in 2014, and it had come down to 2.6 years by 2019. So, you know, people are are certainly were already moving jobs more often as they sought better experiences or more experiences and, and to, to move their careers ahead. So there's a huge amount of different factors involved in this discussion. I also think, though, that um, those kind of figures you were talking about, Adam, can be a lot more nuanced than just, you know, the average will move every so often. It's if there's so much involved and when you start to unpick it and you look at, you know, there's this generational thing. Absolutely. People are more confident in moving on if the experience of their working life doesn't suit them. You said, Noel, about the, you know, the shift in the em- employer-employee relationship. Uh, there has never been, a, a, you know, more of a shift than there has in the last two years. And it really is remarkable the way that uh, people have, a lot of people have generated a lot more of the understanding of their own worth, their own worth to the organisation. And I mean, the, the crazy pay rises that I see people making job moves for. I mean, even one of the most highly sought after professions right now is recruiters. It's, it's absolutely common, normal right now for recruiters to be making job moves for like 50% higher salaries. Wow. That, is, that is absolutely normal. They, they've become like the new optometrists or the new software engineers, like the hardest to hire people. One other thing is, you know, you've got these very um, technical left-brained type professions like software development and healthcare jobs and things like that. They've always been in high demand, but actually there's a whole lot of blue collar type jobs which are in really high demand as well now. I mean, if you're a driver, if you've got an HGV license or something like that, you could probably name your price. Yeah, that, that was going to be my very next question, really. How how far can you you stretch that? You're, you're paying these people more. Is then that coming back to that reputational risk in the for the short term, you're going to have to pay people, you know, as you said, 40, 50 percent more than they're being paid at the moment to either retain them or bring in new people. But they probably can't do that in two, three years time. So that presents its own risk. Well, I suppose the thing is that uh, there's always going to be hotspots. So there's always going to be the, the recruiter. There's always going to be, you know, the software developer that at one particular point in time is going to command um, a, a very high salary increase. But if we look actually at the picture overall, uh, we are just coming out of, of salary increases that have been really deflated over the past, you know, pretty much 10 years. So um, there's a certain amount of catching up that has to be done. But also, again, it's back to the current context of the climate that we're in with the, you know, national insurance increase and the um, inflation. You know, we gather data on pay awards at Expert HR and we're beginning to see for the first time nothing near 50 percent, unfortunately, but, um, you know, over coming up to four percent which if you apply that across the board um to all organizations it's a significant uplift it's difficult to see how companies adapt to this because of course that's going to impact on uh, profit considerably but i guess it also needs to be considered uh in the context that companies are trying to automate as much as they possibly can so you know the most effective companies 
um, are, are not those with the biggest workforces today. They're, they're the ones that have worked out how to be really successful and effective with um, you know, the, 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 the smallest actual number of headcount that they can have. If this is the ongoing long-term trend, what are people going to do? The jobs that have the biggest growth opportunity in the future are things like healthcare, it's nursing, it's social care, it's social work, it's those types of jobs where you really can't replace that kind of thing with technology properly. So which is which I guess is speaks to the fuller point, doesn't it? So we will have areas where the AI is necessary, relevant, important, and functional. And then you will have areas where the people stuff really is still very important. Sadly, those types of jobs are the ones where the pay isn't as high as it should be. And the desirability to do the job you know, is sometimes not as high as it is to do certain other types of things. Yeah, completely agree. I um, did some work with a care home provider and they provided support for care workers. And they were saying it's hard to employ people because they can get more money stacking shelves at a supermarket. Going back to that reputational point, it's improving the reputation of those job roles and responsibilities that can't be replaced. I am nervous about, you know, Noel's point around what do we do? Uh, you know, what are the jobs that people do in the future? I am a little bit nervous about it. Yeah, I, I think what the pandemic's also shown is that people who were maybe doing the same role three or four years overnight, they had to learn new skills and new ways of working. So, for example, now I'm a media trainer. All my media training was done face to face. And then overnight, it's like you can't meet people face to face anymore. And so Zoom training sessions came into being. And now I would say even though face to face is, is up and running again, most people want that Zoom interaction because that's how a lot of journalists want to interact. It gives people a lot of time back. Going back to your earlier point, Adam, it's about being kind of more, more agile with, with the ways of working. Well, humans definitely can definitely adapt better than we think they can. A good friend of mine works for a utilities company, told me that at the beginning of the pandemic, they executed a three-year corporate transformation in three weeks. Wow. And they, they just did it. Like the full three-year corporate transformation around where people work and how they work, they did it in, they did it in three weeks. But I think that also has a lot to do with the, the the shift we were talking about in relationship between the employer and the employee. So if the employee feels that it is being trusted, for example, to to do it to do the work irrespective of where where they are doing the work, then that allows them a little bit of freedom to think about what they're doing, why they're doing it, and if there's better ways of doing that, or could they do something else. I totally agree with that. And actually, back to Grant's point about, you know, the fact that like a two hour media training, you know, or a two, a two hour journalist briefing, you know, going and meeting them for a coffee and all that kind of thing. By the time you leave your office, go and meet them, the meeting with them, then getting back to your office, you know, the amount of time saved in doing that, you know, everybody has had a little bit more time, I think, by not going to the office or not going to meet people in person to be able to actually reflect on what are they doing? And are they actually really doing something they want to be doing? Whereas previously, we were all probably in more of a grind and you just get up and do it. But actually, with more time comes more introspection. And uh, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty certain that's created a lot of the kind of career moves and you know, life changes that people have made. 
do you see this being a kind of a big challenging year for for employers because of this you know, need to to retain and, and maybe grow their their base of employees and and how they how they try and match that need of the employees to want to do more kind of have more flexibility have more responsibility for where their job role takes them but at the same time I guess from the employer's perspective it's we're employing you to do this thing we need you to do this um, that must bring its own challenges I think it's more about mutuality than it ever has been you know it's about um, the employee employer contract like so it's about the employer says well I need you to do this and what they need to say then is and I trust that you will do this and the employee emboldened and empowered by that trust can get on and and do it and also offer insights into into the way that perhaps things can be done differently but getting to your point in terms of a challenging year we're kind of in a bit of a perfect storm there's so much happening there's the labor market's heating up so that always brings you know it brings recruitment and retention sharply into focus one of the things that really stood out to us in terms of priorities when we asked HR about priorities over the coming 12 months was how much well-being and engagement featured and really how that has moved from a policy and document kind of situation into really the strategic space and it's about using those things to ensure that they not only retain the staff and the key talent that they have, but that they can attract the talent that they need to to attract. Running right alongside that is the inflation rates, the utilities bills. You know, uh, it's it's yeah, challenging year, but HR are definitely up for it. But I, I'm I'm sure they could all do the maybe just a nice quiet six months next year. It's just business as usual. As a non-HR person myself, but spending a lot of my time with HR people, I do know that if anybody needs six months off, it's it's HR because uh, there's not very many business functions that have had to face so much disruption. And the other thing about HR is, you know, this is not a mature discipline like finance or certain other disciplines. This is a, a discipline which is still emerging within the corporate world and it's still adapting and finding its feet as a really important part of of any organization and so there's no playbook that they're following they're, they're having they're coming up against completely new scenarios all the time and so you know the ability to execute is one thing but the ability to come up with the right solution when nobody else has faced the challenges they're facing is something that, you know, of course, the CEO is ex- is expecting them to come up with. And in fact, if the pandemic's done one good thing for HR, it is it has really put HR, you know, up at that seat at the table that was maybe a little bit more, a little bit less common in, in 2019. So that's that can only be good. Yeah, they definitely have moved uh, fiercely into the strategic place and, and, and it's brilliant and it's about time. And, you know, I remember when the coronavirus job retention scheme was launched and um, it, generally the guidance would be updated on a Friday, late, and it had to be enacted on the Monday. And we used to have to get our heads around it so that we could produce the guidance that HR needed to follow. But, you know, in all our interactions with them around that time, it was, you know, wh- why are they doing this? It's, it's hard enough to get to grips with the whole new scheme. And when you talk about lack of playbook, hybrid working, 
didn't even exist two years ago. And now it's here in essence everywhere. And it touches every point of the uh, employment uh, life cycle. So it's a huge challenge again for HR. Yeah, there are so many different facets to this today, which didn't exist three years ago. And you just talked about hybrid hybrid working. I mean, a company has to make a, a really active decision now about do we want people in the office? And if so, what's the reason for that? They need to explain why. And um, they need to be able to back that up with data. So we, we know why we need people in the office. And it's because our organization will be more productive and successful, um, you know, based on whatever research they've done to establish that. Not just because, and this has happened too often, it's the CEO's preference. That's absolutely right. And there was one word you used there is uh, we want. And the pandemic and the way things changed in terms of relationships, want doesn't go one way anymore. No, it, it, it definitely doesn't. Many employers will conduct a lot of listening exercises with their employees uh, so that they can use the results to potentially support whatever they were going to do and whatever their preference was in the first instance. So really properly listening to what people are saying and being open to what they're saying is really important. We're in the middle of a real life experiment in many ways, particularly when it comes to the, you know, where we work and, and how we work. And so I am uh, pretty sure that where we are now is not where we're going to end up. And, you know, there's still more things to evolve and still more changes to come. I can tell you, you mentioned the concept of hybrid working. And um, so to me, there's a good and a bad way of, of operating that. The good way is giving people the choice of when, you know, working from home or working yeah. from the office. The bad way is insisting on two days a week in the office and it's on Tuesdays and Fridays yeah. or something like that. You will lose people at a faster rate than your competitors if you are telling them when they need to be in the office because that's potentially the worst of both worlds. You're not allowed to work in the office on a Monday uh Thursday, a Wednesday and a Thursday, and you must be in the office on a Tuesday and a Friday. There's so many reasons why that is, that's a bad, bad way. And there's one technology company in Manchester, I know, who believe that around 50% of the attrition they've had in the last 12 months is because their chief tech, that was what their chief technology officer insisted was the way that he wanted it to work. Yeah, it goes back to that, that statement that you made now about one doesn't go one way anymore. Well, yeah, and yeah, want kind of is a, is a two-way street now. If we follow your example, Adam, and you say, right, well, I am instructing you to come in on those days. You're forcing collaboration, which totally undermines the very essence of collaboration. Because if you're trying to manufacture it, it's just simply not going to work. And what you're going to do to employee engagement by instructing them to come in on these particular days is also not going to be very good. Completely couldn't, agree. Couldn't agree more. Couldn't agree more with that. One just slightly different um, angle to this is the concept of the employer reputation, or as we more commonly call it in HR, the employer brand and the employer brand is something that is very complex and i do believe that 
most people in HR have realized in the last couple of years that your employer brand is not what you tell people it should be. Your employer brand is what other people think of you. And actually, there's not an awful lot you can do to control most of it because most of it is about the CEO's persona. It's about the company's purpose and mission and products or services. And these are all things that that you can maybe influence a little bit, but the, the bits that you have to do if you're in employer branding is you've got to identify, first of all, you've got to identify why do people like to work here? What is the reasons they, they do want to come and work for us or they are working for us and they continue to? And then without sugarcoating the bad bits, you've got to be kind of honest about the bad bits, but yeah. actually really amplify the good bits. Not so you're exaggerating and actually making it up, but really, really just shine a little bit of a spotlight on the good bits while not, while not hiding or lying about the, the bits that aren't quite so good. Well, it has to be authentic, doesn't it? Because otherwise it just doesn't work. What might put me off an organisational culture, such as, you know, it's regular that we travel a lot with our job, etc. That might be very attractive to other people. And putting an authentic picture of your employer brand together just benefits everything. It benefits the, the selection process so you get a better fit. You're less likely to lose people in that really expensive period within the first six to 12 months. So you've paid all this money recruiting them and training them and then they leave. So it just makes such sense. And we've possibly been a little bit shy about being authentic when it comes to the employer brand. Really, what it's going to get you is what you need is people who want to be in your company. If your employer brand puts people off because your company is like... Everybody talks about Brewdog and, you know, all these people that didn't want to work there and whatever. And their response was kind of, it was really the wrong response, of course, which was, well, look, uh, you know, those, those people didn't want to work in a high performance environment where the demands are very high, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. That's fine. I'll tell you what, a lot of people will go, God, I don't want to work there if that's what they think they're like. Yeah. But guess what? The types of people who like to choose to work at Goldman Sachs, They'll also choose to work at Brewdog because they know they're going to get a baptism of fire and it's going to be, you know, it's going to probably be quite exciting for those. So putting people off as much as putting people, you know, turning people on is uh, the right thing to do. And the other part of that is we're in an age of transparency. So I can go onto Glassdoor and I can see what people thought about working at a particular organization. As long as you've got your objectivity glasses on you can find out what it is really like to work at an organization i can go to linkedin i can see who my boss would be who else i'd be working with i could go and probably find them on facebook and find out what their favorite rugby team is or what their favorite band is what they like to eat you know everything we're in an age of transparency and that's why trying to sugarcoat your employer brand is probably less advisable than ever yeah Completely agree. And I, th- I think that is a fantastic place to bring this conversation to an end. It's been absolutely fascinating. We've covered an awful lot. So I'd like to thank you both, uh, Adam and Noel, for your time. Thanks, Thanks Grant. very much. This is a Rostrum Agency production, produced, mixed and edited by Rostrum. Rostrum is a full-service communications agency offering PR, content and influencer marketing 
social media, training, design, and much more. Rostrum is among the UK's top five B2B agencies and a PR Week top 100 agency, specializing in financial services, professional services, consumer and corporate campaigns, as well as crisis management, content marketing, and social media. Rostrum creates campaigns and content to help clients punch above their weight. Rostrum measures everything it does, delivering exceptional value for clients' budgets. To find out more, search rostrum.agency.